Good morning. How is everybody? This is such a drastic, different uh, feeling. They're, people are in their seats and they're they're ready to get going. First and second service, the the amount of kids heading out to classes and the sh- the the hustle and bustle and the shuffling of people around is is quite a bit different. Um, but glad you guys are here this morning. Welcome. If I've never met you before, uh, my name is T.A. or Tim Adams. I go by T.A. Um, one of the associate pastors here. And uh, I'm excited to, to dive in this morning. Um, if you've got a Bible, uh, we're going to be in John 17. We This week in the Bible Initiative, if you've been following along with us, we are finishing the last reading in the Green Book, which is going to be the completion of the Gospel of John. Um, this morning... We are looking at John 17, and for me personally, I think John 17 is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, uh, and I'll explain a little bit more about that here in a, in a second. There, there is just so much in this chapter. Uh, honestly, I feel like I was wrestling a bear trying to figure out how do I, how do I draw in all that is in here into one 30-minute message, um, but John 17 is... Jesus' closing prayer with his disciples in the upper room. The disciples and Jesus have been in the upper room since chapter 13 in the Gospel of John, and and Jesus has been sharing a meal with them. He is teaching them, uh, and he is preparing them for his departure. Uh, As he concludes this prayer, Jesus is getting ready to walk out into the night and onto the cross in the next day. And so... Here's why I think John 17 is one of the best, greatest chapters in the Bible. It's because we get a glimpse of Christ's most inner heart. He kind of bears his soul to the Father in front of the disciples. And um, he truly, we get to truly see just a glimpse of his heart and how much he cares and loves us and what he came here to accomplish So what I want to do this morning uh, is draw out in John 17 a key theme that is throughout his prayer. And that key theme is unity. Um, I want you to see this morning that unity is at the foundation of our mission. And it's there because of the profound spiritual unity between the Father and the Son. So as you read this week, I want to encourage you to read particularly John 17 slowly. Soak it up. Savor what he is actually saying. It's a bit of a confusing text because he's, he, he, he uses Trinitarian language a lot, and it kind of get, you can get lost in the midst of who's he talking about, what's he talking about. Um, but sl- read it slowly. Soak it up and savor what he is actually praying for you and I. Uh, the, the prayer itself can be broken up into three parts. He first prays for himself in verses 1 through 5. And then he prays for his disciples in 6 through 19. And then finally he prays for the church in 20 through 26. And we're going to spend the bulk of our time in the middle portion where Jesus prays for his disciples. But we're simply going to try to walk through each of those three sections here this morning, okay? So if you've got a Bible, open it up to John 17. Or if you've got a phone, uh, we're going to be in John 17 pretty much the whole way through. So first, Jesus prays for himself. In John 17, 1, he says, when Jesus had spoken these words, okay, that is everything he has said from chapters 13 to 16. 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Jesus asked God to glorify him. I want to introduce you to a phrase, into, into a phrase, me for you. Jesus prays, me for you, God. God, I'm asking you to bless me, to glorify me, that I may glorify you. Me for you. Me for you is definitely not me for me. Okay? Me for me leads us down a road of some, some pre- pretty crazy paths, which really ends up being a self-centered Christian. Me for me leads us to approaching Christ like he's a drugstore rather than the, the son of God. One of the, when I was a youth pastor, one of the things that always made me chuckle, frustrated me at the same time, was when a high school student would come to me and say, hey, man, I got a really big test tomorrow. Will you pray for an A? And I'm like, well, did you study? And they would always kind of look at me like, well, isn't this what, you know, like, isn't this what we're supposed to do, pray about the grade? And I, I always kind of walked them through, look, you, you have to take some ownership of your life. Like, we can pray for these things, but our lives have to reflect that. You know, you can't expect a good grade without studying. And in the same way, when we come before the Father, we can't expect just to treat him like a drugstore and then turn around and live our life the way we just choose after we pray that prayer. The reason he prays me for you is Jesus is keenly aware of what's about to happen. As he closes this prayer and he steps out of the upper room, he is hours away from betrayal and he's hours away from the cross. The upper room, Jesus prays that he would be further glorified so that he would be shown more completely for who he was, which was the Son of God. You know, Jesus knows that the cross, he knows that the resurrection three days later is ultimately going to be the best way that people see him for who he was as the Son of God. And he knows that the sacrifice he is about to embark on is one that is going to radically change the relationship God has with his people. So Jesus sets the example here, and that's what I want us to see, is that at the foundation, we ought to model our prayer life the way Jesus does. Me for you. As we go before the Father um, in prayer, one of the things you're going to hear today is you're going to hear some tiebacks to teachings over the last few weeks because they're, they're, they're key in his prayer. You know, I'll bring you back to a message that Tim spoke on on miracles, and he challenged us as if Jesus comes to you and says, do you want to be healed? We, we not, ought not to respond with a list of reasons why it hasn't happened yet, right? For us to bring glory to the Father, we don't have to have life figured out, but we do have to have ownership of the life that we live for the Lord. But often our prayers reflect that we have to have things perfectly figured out. You know, if, I just, if we just get into this house, it'll work. If I can just get my 401k to this point, we'll, we'll be secure and we can focus ourselves on something else. If I just had this car, or if I had, you know, if, I, if we prayed, you know, Lord, I, I will, I'll be more involved once my kids are a little bit older. You know, we, we, we try to situate ourselves in our lives to be perfect before we start to enter in and take ownership of our life as a believer. Our prayers should always be that our lives reflect the glory of God. 
the car, the 401k, they really don't matter. They're important, but they really don't matter. When we see God's love for us and the vast cost for our redemption that it took place on the cross, truly the only response we should have is me for you. God, whatever I do with my life, I want it to be glorifying to you. It should be the foundational thing for us. And the reason he prays this here is that me for you is at the root of successful unity. When we're committed to a living a life solely for the, for the glory of the Father and not for our own gain, that kind of posture is where unity can flourish. And so as Jesus sets that example, then he shifts his focus and he prays for his disciples. Starting in verse 6, I want you to see in John 17 that it, the reason it's so captivating is it starts to show us and reveal to us the kind of prayers that Jesus offers for us today. So as he shifts his focus to his disciples, in verse 6 he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Understand this, at a, at a ground level, believers are the world's best hope for seeing the glory of God today. How do we do that? Just as he prays, we must be people of the word. Jesus made the Father's glory in a very simple way comprehensible to us because he came here to earth, he taught us, he lived his life amongst us, and he did not compromise, he did not waver from what that looked like. For you and I know this, that if we are rooted in the word, a man or a woman who remains rooted there, we can, one, for ourselves, know the love of the Father, but two, we have the opportunity to make the glory of the Father comprehensible to others, to the lost. Which is why he prays so much for our relationships. And he kind of breaks this into two parts. He first prays for our relationships with each other as believers, with his relationships with his disciples. And unity is the first thing he brings to the table. In verse 11, he says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. You see, Jesus built the disciples' unity and security by revealing the personality and the character of the Father through his teachings, through the life that he lived with us here. And the more that the disciples understood the attributes and the character of God, the more that they became one themselves. Um, picture it like this. Sorry, you guys, I'll move this back here. Picture it like a cone. Our unity can be described like this cone. We are at the base of this thing, and Christ is at the top. Okay? We know through Scripture that we are given community. The church is, is here for a purpose. Acts 2 talks about the church growing and, and worshiping together and breaking bread together and meeting each other's needs and giving each other and they, that the Lord added to their number daily, right? Hebrews 10 says, challenges us to let us not give up meeting together. Let us stir each, spur each other on to faith and good works as we see the Lord as a day coming. We know that we're supposed to be in community together. And what happens is, as we strive to know and understand who Christ is, we, we ascend these slopes to where Christ is. Now, yes, it's steep. 
But we, as we ascend these slopes, we end up becoming closer and closer to each other. So as we draw closer to God, we draw closer to one another. Um, this April, several of us on the pastoral staff will be attending a conference called Together for the Gospel, T4G. It, it's held every couple years, and it is an incredible conference. Um, we love going. The worship is incredible. The encouragement, the teaching is just it's just awesome. But what's really cool about this conference is how it got started. It was four pastors um, from four different denominations that have some pretty wildly theological different views. But they came together saying, hey, we want the main thing to be the main thing, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they started this conference that has now turned into 12 to 15,000 pastors and church leaders gathering together with, with all of their differences, with all the denominational traditions, they stand together for the main thing, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want, I want you to understand this. Like, this is Southern Baptist and General Baptist and Reformed churches and, and Bible churches and non-denominational churches, wildly charismatic and very ultra-conservative, all together. And what's amazing is that, yes, there is difference of opinion Yes, if we tried to get a vote on something, most things we would not be able to get a unanimous vote on. It just would be very difficult. But what's amazing is underneath all of that, there is unity. The more this group lifts up Christ, the more they become unified together. And I share this because I want you to know that unity does not mean uniformity. We're not, we're not supposed to all be the same. There, is, there can be unity amidst great diversity of style and opinion. But the closer we draw to Christ, the closer we end up being in unity together. So how does, how does this play out in the local church? How does this play out at LCF? Because the reality is community falters, right? We get in, get in life together and we end up somewhere or another experiencing the brokenness that takes place in community because we're all still dealing with the sin in our own lives. And so some way or another, we end up, people we love, betray our trust, lie to us, go behind our backs, and we end up feeling the angst of pride, of jealousy, of greed, of envy. But in the midst of that pain, we must strive for unity. And I'm not talking about interpersonal with, you know, with one another, just, hey, let's, get, let's all get along. I'm talking about a unity that is of God. Paul reminds us of this in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verses 16 through 21. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in, is anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All of this from, is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us to the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
So how does this apply within the church? It means that we don't look at each other according to the flesh. It means that we don't look at each other according to our sin. We ought to see each other as Christ does, as a new creation. We need to endure and persevere with each other in patience in these moments. But please do not mistake me for saying we need to let sin slide. If anything, we need to be more resolute to not allow sin to fester here. So if you're, if you're the one that's in sin, you need to be able to recognize and own your sin. You, you should pursue restoration. You need to pursue right relationship with your brothers and sisters. One of the single most difficult questions that we have to ask when we are in sin is to go to a, a brother that we've hurt and ask, how has my sin affected you? Here's why. Because one, first, we are new creations in Christ. And two, if we don't ever ask that question, how are we ever to know how we ought to pursue forgiveness? If you don't ask the question, how do you know what you're supposed to be apologizing for? You ought to do everything in your power to seek restoration in the body of Christ. How does this apply if we, are, if we as the believer are the one who takes the offense if we're the one that's hurt by somebody else's actions, it means that we offer forgiveness and we seek to find restoration in our relationships, especially with those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. But hear me say this. I'm not saying don't hold the line. Hold the line. You you need to hold the line on what sin is sin, but we need to work through it. We need to be willing to bring ourselves to the table and say, I'm willing to forgive you. This means that we as believers ought to be asking for and offering forgiveness in all circumstances. Why? Why why would we put ourselves through that mental and physical drain, that kind of brokenness and pain? Because of the model Jesus sets for us here in John 17, that day after day, we ought to be learning what it means to glorify the Father. Jesus prays for our unity But ultimately, that unity is what brings glory to the Father. And yes, that's going to be very hard. It's hard to work through the pain that we cause each other and the way that sin can wreck us. But Jesus prays for their unity. He prays that we set the standard of everything we do brings glory to the Father. Because he knows what's about to come. He knows that Peter is about to embark on a really difficult night. You see, Peter's going to step out of this room and he's going to end up denying Jesus three times in the next 12 hours. We have to learn what it means to die to ourselves. Whether we fall ourselves or we're caught in the wake of somebody else's sin, we've got to figure out what it means to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, die to ourselves so that we're able to draw closer to Christ. The apostles aligned themselves with Christ, not their own agenda. You know, did they learn that in a night? No, they, they walked with Jesus. They lived and watched him teach us, and then after his ascension into heaven, they gave their lives for the sake of the gospel. 
Why would they do that? Because they were one. They had become one. A.W. Tozer says it like this. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned with the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? Each, one, each are, are of one accord by being tuned, but not to each other, but to another standard which each one individually must bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be if they were to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. You see, we, we don't seek unity for our own gain. We don't seek unity just not to make ways, to make sure that everyone's happy with each other. We seek unity to be in tune with Jesus Christ. If you sit here today and you harbor bad feelings or ill will towards another brother or sister in Christ, I love you, but hear me say that is not of Christ. A church that strives for unity, that takes on the steep slopes here. A church that strives for unity ends up becoming one, and they, are, they end up being, it becomes more of a effective, irresistible, mission-driven church because it's not for our gain, it's for the glory of Christ. The more we draw to, to draw, more that we draw our eyes and focus to Him, the more we are drawn to one another. It's not for anyone's personal gain, but it's for the glory of God. And the result of that kind of unity is joy. In verse thirteen, Jesus prays, "I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." Jesus says, "My joy." He's not praying for a joy from below, a prayer for joy in our circumstances. He is praying for a joy that has its origins in heaven. Joy is the occupation. Joy is the character. Joy is the realization of heaven. It's not dependent on our circumstances, but it's, on, it's dependent on the love of a sovereign God. Our hope our joy, it's not rooted in this world. It's rooted in an eternity in heaven. You know, we sang the song, the joy of the Lord is our strength this morning. And friends, I, I don't know how to convince you of this, but if you are willing to place your hope in an eternity in heaven, it is worth it. It is so worth it. And what happens when you do that, when you place your hope in Jesus Christ, and you place your hope in eternity, in heaven, watch the scales of pride and control fall from your life. And what can only be replaced is joy and peace. It is amazing. I don't, I don't know how to convince you of that other than that joy is found here, not down at the base. So first, Jesus prays for our relationships, and it's heavy, and it's thick, right? And then he shifts his focus, and it's even as heavy and equally as thick, but he prays for our relationships with the world. 
verses 14 through and 15, he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Okay, first see this, that Jesus prays for our protection. In 2017, we have taken protection to like DEFCON 5. Okay, I've got three little kids, five and under, and every time I put them in their car seats in my car, I feel like I'm setting them up for space travel. Like, click, 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 click. How, like, what, at what point are we putting helmets on them while they drive in the car? Yeah, personally, I think helmets might be good. It might dampen the sound of three loud kids. No, just kidding. I love my kids. I love the noise that they make in the car. But... <laughs> um, my point, we take protection very, very seriously, just as Jesus does. Jesus prays for our protection, but notice what he prays. Do not take them out of the world. You know, first, friends, our attitude toward the world should not be one of withdrawal. Christ does not ask that we be taken away. We have a tendency, right? We have a tendency to avoid a fallen society, a fallen world. Really, we kind of have an affinity for comfort, and that comfort leads to complacency in our lives. But we often find ourselves and our lives arranged so much so that we're around non-believers as little as possible. We attend Bible studies in small groups that are 100% Christian. We attend church services that I think at times we hope are 100% Christian. We read only or primarily Christian books. We listen to Christian radio only. Those things aren't bad. They really can be very edifying. But notice that Jesus does not pray for us to be out of the world. And, he, and these things that we do, listen to only Christian radio, listen to being only 100% Christian small groups, they really have a tendency to slide us towards isolating ourselves into a Christian subculture. Dare I say, the bubble. Um, after years of college ministry uh, with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, Rebecca Piper wrote a book called Out of the Salt Shaker. And she says this, we must not become, as John Stott puts it, rabbit hole Christians. The kind who pops its head out of a hole and leaves his Christian roommate in the morning and scurries to class only to frantically search for a Christian to sit by. It's an odd way to approach a mission field. Thus he proceeds from class to class, and when dinner comes, he sits with his Christians in his dorm at one huge table and thinks, man, what a witness. From there, he goes to, to, to his all-Christian Bible study, and then he might even catch a prayer meeting where Christians pray for non-Christian, non-believers on their floor. But what luck, he was able to live on the only floor with 17 other Christians. And then at night, he scurries back to his Christian roommate, safe. He made it through the day, and his only contacts with the world were those mad, brave dashes to and from Christian activities. What an insidious reversal of the biblical command to be salt and light. Friends, we have to ask ourselves honestly if we've functionally removed ourselves from the world. Because Jesus prays that that we will not. We need to live our lives boldly for the gospel. Isolating ourselves from the world removes us from any opportunity to share the hope that we have within us. We've got a gift. We have a gift of eternal life. We have a gift of a Savior 
And we need to give that gift away freely. Yes, Jesus prays for our protection, but he specifically asks that we not be taken out of the world because there is a mission left to accomplish here. He continues that prayer and says, but, keep them, but that you keep them from the evil one. We don't have a ton of time this morning to go into great depth here, but notice that Jesus prays for your protection against spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is real. Spiritual warfare has the ability to affect every life. And Satan's got two primary objectives with spiritual warfare. One, to destroy the faith of God's people, and two, to defame God's glory. Friends, I pray every night for my family, for my kids, that they would be spared from the evil one. You know, sometimes I get to pray this audibly with them. Sometimes I have to sneak into the room late at night and pray over them. But I pray every night that they would be spared from the evil one. I would be lying to you if I did not say that I, that I am concerned about the pervasive and sick sexuality of our culture today. I constantly ask myself, what in the world, what kind of world are my girls growing up in? But I can't succumb to that fear. I can't worry about this. I have to go to the Father. I intercede on my kids' behalf, just as Christ does for you. That God would keep them from the evil one. And I pray every night that my family would know the satisfaction, the fulfillment, the confidence, and the completion that comes in a life given over to the Lord. Jesus pray, continues to pray for our sanctification. Not only does he pray for our protection, but he continues to pray for our sanctification. And in verse 17 and 19, he provides the plan for the mission. You know, unity is a critical part of the plan, and through that unity is the advancement of the gospel. But then he prays in 17 and through 19. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may also may be sanctified in truth. So the game plan is sanctification. Sanctification is just a fancy Christian word that by definition is to be made holy. That you and I are to become more like Christ. The second idea with sanctification is that we are set apart for service. So in, in 17, he tells us that sanctification comes through the word because his word is truth. So we are to be made holy and set apart by the close examination and application of the word of God. If you've got a Bible initiative book, inside the first couple pages, you'll find a prayer that we've been praying for this year. And it says that we, our prayer is that the word of God would speak louder than any other voice, that the scriptures would transform our hearts into the image of God, that it would inform our minds of the truth of scripture, and that it would create a hunger more, that more of God and more of his word and that scriptures would lead us to worship in awe of the majesty of God. You see, as pastors, we can shepherd, we can point you to Christ, but we cannot sanctify you. That is the Lord's work and his alone. And he does that through his word and through his Holy Spirit. We must press into examining and applying 
the truth within the word. And we must listen to the Holy Spirit. Now, there's going to be a lot more on the Holy Spirit in the next few weeks as we jump into Acts. So there's more to come on this. But notice, Jesus prays that the process of sanctification does take place in our lives, but that it takes place in a fallen world. You see, when we invest our lives studying and applying the word, what happens is the scriptures guard us from disunity. They guard us from being too isolated from the world, and they guard us from being too assimilated into the world. When we let God transform our lives by the renewing of our minds, it's impossible for you and I not to be moved to be sharing what God is doing in our lives. Christ prays that his followers would not hold on to this good news for themselves. He prays that we would press in with him. And for some of us, because of the scheduling of our lives, it's going to take purposeful and decisive action for us to be around non-believers. That's me. I mean, I, I live in this world with you guys. I mean, it it's, takes effort on my part to make sure that I, as a pastor, are around non-believers. If you think back to Joe Stewart's message at the beginning of the month, in John 4, Jesus tells his disciples, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. And he challenges them, I sent you to reap. Do you remember what, the, the, what was the harvest? What was white for harvest? It was people. It was people who were ripe for the acceptance of the gospel. So friends, we need to be in the word of God, and we need to be in the world to reap. God's our protector, and God's going to be the one that continues to sanctify you and I. His final focus as he closes his prayer is a prayer that he's, his devotion to the church. He prays for the church. And I want you to see this. He prays for you. He prays for this church, for LCF. He prays for the church universal. We need to sense the spiraling intensity of Jesus' words here. When In verse 20 he says, I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through your word. Those who will believe. That's you and I. Think about this for a moment. They're in a room. There are 11 guys, 11 ordinary men who are listening to this prayer with Jesus who will be responsible for taking the word of God and establishing his church. God is praying for those who, believe, who will believe through them, he's praying for those who believe that became before you and those who will believe because of you. Think about the faithfulness of God here for just a second. He uses ordinary men to build his church. The majority of you are here today, whether it was your parents or whether it was somebody else, like for myself, it was somebody else that came and shared the gospel with me. You're here because of somebody that was just an ordinary person but they were a faithful follower of Christ. And they shared the good news with you. Wouldn't it be amazing to kind of step back in generations to see who influenced your parents and who influenced them and who influenced them all the way back to these 11 apostles? It'd be awesome to be able to find out which, where your spiritual ancestry comes from, which one of these 11 that it came from. 
spiritualancestry.com. Corey, you want to build that website? <laughs> um, I've been known to put my foot in my mouth before, so clearly I come from the spiritual line of Peter, right? <laughs> but man, God is incredibly faithful. He continues to make this intercession today. I do not ask for these only, for the Rupkis, for the Bilhars, but also for those who will believe in me through your word. Again, Christ prays for the unity of the church. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through your word, that they may be one. Yes, he was concerned with how people represented the love of God. Yes, he was concerned with how people lived their life in pursuit of holiness. Yes, he was concerned about the mission. But notice that his final earthly prayer, he makes unity the transcending concern. This unity that he prays for comes from that indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And as you and I ascend these slopes, as we draw closer to Christ, we end up drawing closer to one another. I can't help but think about like Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, like where he says, throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles you and let them run the race of perseverance marked out before you fixing your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith. If we did that, we become this irresistible movement that people just have to know, how do you guys love each other so well? Well, let me tell you about the love of Christ. The biblical pursuit of unity is so important. Jesus kind of closes down his prayer with three reasons why. And they're monumental. Verses 21, 23, and 26. In 21, he says that, there may, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us. And here it is. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. If we have unity, the world will believe that Jesus came from God. Unity is an evangelistic necessity. Our unity is a testimony to who Jesus Christ is. And it goes on in verse 23, it says, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and, then, and loved them even as you loved me. Our unity is a display of God's love to an unbelieving world. What does it say to an unbelieving world when a body of Christ, when the church has dissension and anger and it's void of trust? Jesus' prayer for unity here goes far beyond just simple reconciliation. It's at the roots of glorifying the Father. Glorify me for you, Father. Christian unity is so important because the world's pursuit of unity is so futile. When genuine unity is authentically demonstrated, it's irresistible. Real unity in Christians is a supernatural work, and it has a supernatural explanation. It's Christ in us. And look how he closes his prayer. In verse 26, he says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus closes his prayer with a vow to the Father, and it's also a promise to you and I, that he will continue to make his name known to us, meaning all that he is. And on top of that, he will also increase 
the Father's love in us. That's his vow. In our unity, he will be our continuing experience to know him and to experience the love of the Father. Praise God for that. I know this is a heavy message, but praise God for that. Unity is at the foundation of our mission to glorify the Father. Friends, let's, let's draw near to one another. Let's worship together right now. Do that with me. Go ahead and stand.